This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Home Gadget Geeks, show number 174, recorded on July 3rd, 2014. Here at Home Gadget Geeks, we cover all the favorite home gadgets that find their way into your home. These reviews, product updates, and conversation all for the average tech guy. I'm your host, Jim Carlson, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in a beautiful valley in Nebraska. We have had just some awesome weather over the last few days. Not so much on the East Coast, but right in Bellevue right now, it's good. I mean, we had 65 degrees on July 2nd. That never happens. Here, but uh, here in Bellevue, Nebraska, and we post a show with world class show notes each week out at the Average Guy. TV. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can contact the show. Send me an email, jcollison. No, nope, it's jim at theaverageguy.tv. Or you can find me on Twitter. That one is jcollison, and many of you have found me recently, so I appreciate that. You can call in those questions as well, 402-478-8450. We'll even take a crank call. If it's funny, I might even play it on the show. So <laughs> give, us those, give us those calls, and we'll play your question right here. And now Home Gadget Geeks is a part of the Geeks Network. Find the link to this show and many other great podcasts out at the Geeks Network. That's just thegeeksnetwork.com. Dave promised me he was going to update that. So, Dave, if you're listening to this, get that page updated, all right? Join us live in chat, watch, or listen live on YouTube, Spreaker, or Mixler and find all the navigation that you'll ever need to get around at theaverageguy.tv and the, and the newly redesigned Average Guy. TV. All right, we've got a great show tonight. A couple guys back. Christian is back in the house tonight, and uh, Christian, good to see. You. I feel like I spent more time with you in the last <laughs> two weeks than I have maybe in the last six months. How are you? I know it feels like we're conjoined at the hip, right? <laughs> I know. But. It's like during the spring when you were busy, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find you, and uh, and now it seems like we're talking at least once a day. What he's really trying to say is now he just can't get enough of me. <laughs> But. Yeah, that is kind of what I'm trying to say. So, so good, good to uh, good to have you back on. Good to have some summer vacation, sort of, for you. I know you're working a couple jobs, but uh, good to get access to you and have you on the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here, and I'm excited to talk virtualization because we haven't done that in a while. So, um, yeah, not to prematurely introduce our next guest, but Paul is kind of the expert on all things virtual. Virtual, so. Yeah, well, let me introduce him, Paul Brarin, over at TinkerTry.com. And Paul is really our resident expert in virtualization. We were hoping to also get Jay Moore on tonight. Jay just got his certifications a couple weeks back. Uh, Jay couldn't make it, but Paul could. Paul, welcome. Good to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me tonight. Uh, can you feel the electricity in the air? You'll watch out this window tonight as lightning is just firing all around me. So if the overhead lights go out, the computer will stay running. I'm on a UPS. So I'm ready for whatever tonight, Jim. We're good it's to go. Stormcast 2014. Yes. It, it, it just rolled in like 10 minutes before we went on the air here, so it should be interesting. Yeah. You might actually hear it in the background. But I, I'm wireless. I'm safe. I'm good. You, you won't be, uh, unless it decides to shoot out through the wall or something. Then no, we then. got the cordless mouse. You know, I'm, okay. I'm good. I'll be all right. Now through the computer screen. Come on. I like it. I like it. Well, what what excite? What you know? It would be more exciting if, but anyways. Well, Paul, <laughs> what if I got shot dead? Right. <laughs> all right. Um, Paul. Uh, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Are you there, Paul? Are you there? <laughs> well, Paul, good to have you. We, we are going to talk some virtualization. I remind you, stay till the end. We've got a bunch of announcements to get done here at the end, including some updates on the meetup uh, that's coming up in Indianapolis. So I'll talk briefly about that. We'll talk with Christian a little bit about Cyber Frontiers. That we got another one of those in. We are ramping up Cyber Frontiers, and 
actually now got that available on uh, Spreaker and iHeartRadio as well. So if you haven't gotten subscribed to that, there'll be all kinds of ways to do that. And we'll talk a little bit about the home tech tips. Paul will have a tip for us here at the end of the program as well. And we have a brand new program called Home Tech Tips. I'll talk more about that uh, here at the end. All right, Paul, let's uh, shift to you and get things going here. Why don't you give us, we haven't seen you in a while. I, I didn't go back and count the number of weeks. I like to try and get you on the program two or three times a year. That seems to be about the right cadence to have you on. It's been a while since we had you. Uh, catch us up with what's been going on with you. Sure. Well, on a personal note, just uh, I was working all day and I went for a nice four-mile walk and came across critters like this. So I'll just remind people, this time of year, you know, it's kind of good to get outdoors and enjoy nature. We all sit at our computers in the winter a lot. We look at blogs. We write stuff. It is really nice to be outdoors and taking a nice walk with, uh, with one of my sons today. So that's what's good about summer, right? We all kick back a little, web traffic falls off a little, and the IT pros tend to slack a little bit. And trying I don't to get know. I've, this week, I've, spent more, I've spent more time indoors. Oh, you know, we changed over the AverageGuy.tv, and I've been working on a lot of back-end stuff. So that hasn't <laughs> held true for me. But uh, but what else have you been up to? Yeah, now your site your site looks great, all the changes and all. I know, I know what uh, that takes a lot of work. <laughs> I'm going through some, some of that on my own. Um, yeah, no, actually this summer, uh, part of my plans are, to, to, part of the outdoor theme is uh, taking two weeks off from work and hitting the road a bit. So I'll be in New York City giving a virtualization talk there at a VMUG, it's called, VMware User Group meeting there. First time I've been in New York City and meeting those folks. And then at a VTUG, Virtualization Technology User Group meeting in Maine where you get all the lobster you can eat. And that's coming up in the third week of July. So I'll have some blog, blog posts about those little uh, excursions I have coming up. So that's what I do when I'm on vacation for my day job. <laughs> I, I spend a day and I go to user groups. That, that's just kind of how I am. I've been doing that for two decades. So. No, it's good. User groups are good. We uh, I just actually met with some guys today. We're going to start a social media user group here in the Omaha area, kind of talk about uh, social media podcasting, blogging, those kinds of things. We're going to start a local user group. So that's uh, that's always good. What, um, what's been keeping you busy work-wise? Uh, you know, I know you can't talk all the details, but uh, anything new on the work front? Yeah, no. Um, my day job at IBM keeps me awfully busy, and when quarters end, it gets really busy. So I would say all signs are economy of a boom. <laughs> it's been really, you know, end of second quarter there was just nuts. So when I say July 1st is when things, where you get to take it easy a little. Not so much June 30th, for instance. So it's been really grueling. So it is nice here to kick back and have a little fun. And that's part of why you haven't seen me online so much. Just June is nuts. And, uh, yeah. Well, it's um, good to have you on after the quarter. I didn't, I didn't plan it that way, but, but, no, no. or I should say, the year end, right? Um, uh, June thirty first was your, uh, your year end, but uh, so good that that worked out well. Yeah, no, no, it's been, it's good, and um, I would say in the personal, you know, front in the home lab, we'll get into that in a bit about what I've been doing with VMware and uh, RAID adapters and other projects, which, uh, as you know, I tend to blog about when I can the, the things that are more noteworthy that happen that I figure out as I go. I take notes kind of for myself and share them with the rest of the world. That's just what I do. No, very cool. You've got a very extensive site, so tinkertry.com. If, if you haven't checked that out yet and you're part of this community, you will want to head out at this point and take a peek at it. Lots of good articles. Let's walk through a few of kind of the hot ones that uh, you've been working on. I know you took some notes for me and some things that you want to cover, but what's been? let's, let's first start with VMware and, and what's going on in that world. I know six months ago we got 5.5. There's a lot of talk, and then you know that doesn't that can't necessarily maintain momentum in, in the social circles. It's just not that exciting. But what uh, what's kind of going on in the the VM space, the VM world, or uh, VMware space? Yeah, no, sure. Um, 
let's think back to September and the home server show meetup. I was in the airport in Indianapolis when that, uh, what was I flying home, Sunday night? Boom, they dropped ESXi 5.5. So it's actually been you know, nine, 10 months now. Uh, September last year, 5.5 came out. Why would a home lab enthusiast like me care? I'm not talking necessarily about enterprise users that you know do this at work, and they're going to do that a year or two from now, right? They don't tend to have the very latest VMware version in their enterprise. But the home lab enthusiast, what it meant for me is, ah, finally, GA code that breaks the two terabyte boundary for your VMs. I have five terabytes of videos, for instance, that I um, collected way back in 2007. And I heard you on the air talking about that, Jim, recently, digitizing Hyatt tapes, right? That was me in 2007. And 2008, 2009 came along, and that's where I discovered home server as a way to back up that five terabytes. So all the time, I've always wanted to have a virtual machine that can handle more than two terabytes. So that was the excitement of nine, ten months ago, five, five. What happened yesterday was I discovered a little article that June 30th, VMware dropped public beta testing. So used to be it was only people working for large enterprises or uh, in the VMware partner programs would have access to the SXI the latest and greatest features in the beta, if you're willing to suffer maybe a little bit of pain. Suddenly now they open up applications to the world. And right there, um, put a blog post together uh, July 2nd saying VMware vSphere beta program is now open to the public. So that's kind of big news. They, you know, I've been, I guess, um, tinkering with VMware since, ooh, 14 years or so, 13 years ago. Uh, VMware Workstation is that old now, right? This stuff's mature. It's been around a long time. Uh, it was GSX, and then it became ESXi maybe 12 years ago. So kind of big news that they're finally letting, maybe not the masses, right, but the IT pro who might use VMware at work, probably more inclined to try things when you still have a free hypervisor that's more and more capable. Uh, it can use a huge amount of RAM now. It no longer has artificial restrictions. And then finally, you've got beta for people that really want to tinker with a bleeding edge now open to anyone to apply. And speaking of beta, you had mentioned, or, or um, you know, yeah, the beta test. You had mentioned there's a board on your site there. Uh, some of the new motherboards only supporting 32 gig of RAM mm. for a lot of these. Is it with the Z97? Do you have that number right? What's what's the what's that board? Z97, correct. Yeah. And I'm looking at my own homepage. Yep. And um, June 7th, Haswell Z97, limited to 32 gig memory max, an unfortunate reality for virtualization enthusiasts. That was my title. Yeah, we're still stuck. Um, there were some chipsets where you had eight DIMM slots three years ago, but if I'm going to replace my virtualization server, which I've had for three years and a quarter now, my VZilla box running in my basement, if I were to replace that, I don't want to still be at 32 gig of RAM, right? You're not going to spend drop 1200 to two grand a new motherboard CPU memory combo for really minimal performance gains. So that RAM restriction, it really looks like Intel is pushing us all to thinking about Xeons if you're trying to go past 32 gig. Maybe that article is mostly about, right now is not a great moment to be buying something. Maybe you're looking at Xeon if you want to go that route or just wait for Broadwell or whatever's next. But even there, doesn't look all that promising either. So yeah, that was kind of a hard article to research and write. Um, but I hadn't really found it. I was poking around the web trying to find is 32 gig really the max for commodity, you know, consumer, cheap, relatively affordable motherboards for like under 200? The answer still seems to be a big fat yes. So we're at a kind of a, a funky state. Whether we're talking about Hyper-V or VMware, doesn't really matter. Your memory is most likely going to be your first bottleneck. You're going to run out of it. If you have two, three, four VMs, some of them are maybe bigger, like SQL Server or 
I don't know, Exchange server, if, you, if you're an IT pro and you're trying with more bloated VMs that use multi gigs of RAM each, that's your, pin, your pain point is memory. So unfortunately, um, yeah, you're kind of stuck unless you want to go with Xeons and like Supermicro or Tiam motherboards that cost a little more. And yeah, memory costs a little more. The price just climbs right up quickly, right? I kind of noticed that I was replacing the studio PC here, and uh, that's consumer. I wasn't. In, I'm not intending to run VMs on top of the, you know, the the PC that I'm using right now. But uh, just a quick look. I hadn't bought a, a new motherboard maybe two years, and so I was doing a little bit of research and was surprised that most of those boards got limited to Haswell. I have a, I have the Core i7 uh, 47 4770. Uh, I was surprised we were still at the two at the 32 gig uh, limit for that. And Christian, any uh, or Paul, any idea why we're still why those are still 32? Is it just a limitation on the board, or what's why not 64? Anyone? The silence. Well, he said your name first, so I was being polite. Go ahead, Christian. Oh, I mean, I. It's kind of hard to say. I mean, I think. I think the the actual dim size of the chips too has become an issue, and we're still kind of waiting for that to become cost effective. So you're you're saying though you're talking about the max capacity supported as opposed to the actual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's the bias, and there's the there's the long wait for DDR4. We're in that lull right now. Right, but, but I mean, yeah. yeah. If you're on if you're on a server board architecture, you never run into that problem, right? So I think they're right. trading off some of the desktop features, like having a probably faster lanes on the PCI Express bus and making some of the chipsets capable for overclocking, that's probably taking away from the room that they have to, you know, support those larger chips. The other thing is that in server settings, they typically will, you know, it's all ECC checked RAM and it's all running at a very stable known quantity clock speed. So I imagine that with the these boards that are designed to as they all say in their title, go to the extreme, um, overclocking all of those chips at a high rate and then trying to juggle the triple channel communication and that stuff gets more complex as you increase your density. So there's probably a, a ratio there. Christian, I was kind of thinking of you first too with BIOS mods and some of the weird stuff that's happened with ThinkPads. I think it was a yeah. T60. There was some laptop where it said 4 gig max, but... Then did uh, Stodims came out for laptop. I tried a 16 or 8 gig. I, I broke that boundary, but I had to go with a new BIOS. You know, right. Lenovo uh, had to come up with a new BIOS that would allow you. So the, the original laptop came out marketed as, I think, 4 gig or 8 gig max, whatever it was. Right. Eventually, right. we blew past that three years later when a new BIOS came out. Right. People just went and discovered on their own. They bought this new memory. It was not officially supported in any way, but what do you know? It worked. Yeah, and that's like, you know, there's two architectural components. One is, does the hardware and the chipset physically support it? And then mm -hmm. the second one is, did the BIOS developers who wrote this from their cookie cutter, uh, you know, starter templates, did they actually even, did it dawn on them at the time they wrote the BIOS that, hey, we might actually put this much uh, memory in this device uh, down the road? And oftentimes the answer is no, they don't think about that at all. So, Yeah, and... um. You're right, and it's not the kind of thing you'd find in marketing materials. Um, often a chip will come out or a Z97 motherboard will say a limit. So I wanted to find out from Intel, the source, is this really a hard limit, meaning this is never going to be lifted. You know, We're not going to find out two years from now that actually bigger dims came out. You can shove them in the Z97 motherboard, and with a bias flash, boom, you're in business. You're now at 64 gig. And I got a definitive answer from an Intel employee, and that's what I'm projecting on the uh, – I'm showing my screen off here, Jim. Yeah. Um, there it is. 
uh, she answered me. We went back and forth, and she just, you know, basically, yeah, you have permission to type whatever you want, and uh, I went and published it. So, um, yeah, it ain't gonna happen. So Z97 Haswell CPUs, their website. When I was doing this research back in uh, early, uh, late May, it didn't really have a definitive answer. You could look on the Intel Arc site, ark.intel.com. Most of you uh, enthusiasts are probably familiar with that wealth of information, and you'd be poking around and looking for any CPUs or motherboards that listed anything beyond 32 gig, and you couldn't find it. But you couldn't find an explicit statement saying it'll never go past it, right, architecturally. And that's finally what I got in writing, that, yeah, you're stuck at 32. And it was just sad because, again, knowing that there were chipsets three years ago in the consumer space that were like $200 motherboard, it would have eight DIMM slots, and you were good to go. Um, why am I lamenting this? Well, let me just mention. So I've got a server that runs 24-7, I call VZilla, successfully been running VMware, uh, ESXi hypervisor for years, and it's 60 to 90 watts. It's not bad to leave running. It's two or maybe 300 and a bad year of electricity. When I was using a Xeon hand-me-down from work, that thing was $500, $600 electricity per year. I just wouldn't use it. It's too darn loud, and, you know, warming up the basement, that kind of thing. So it is a big deal. So when you look at an Intel NUC or something like that, where it runs Hyper-V or VMware quite nicely, offers VTD pass-through, one of those fancier features, um, but it also goes down 800 megahertz when it's idle, which is what it's doing most of the time when there's one IT pro, me, running these VMs. Most of the time they're sitting there idle, right? And that's pretty awesome when you get down to 20, 30 watts. So when you look at the bill, meaning not just my VZilla server, but also the electric bill over the last three years, it was a success. I have no desire to go to a motherboard that's 130, 180 watts, which there's plenty of those out there, Xeon or three-year-old chipsets. So again, all the reason for that article. That's why I'm in this waiting period. There's nothing that interests me right now to replace it. Um, but, you know, so that's where we're at. So thank you, Jim, for reminding me of my own article. I had kind of forgotten about that I wrote a month ago. I've written, I think I've written six since. So, um, but good points. Yeah. Um, you were asking me also. Yeah. Let me, go ahead. Let me real quick. Uh, so I had uh, I had replaced my board as a Z87. So it's not the 97, but. It's an 87 board, Haswell Core i7. It's been great. I For just a regular uh, desktop running Windows 8, which, by the way, I'm loving Windows 8.1 update. It works just like Windows 7. I've said that on the show several times. They keep getting each each version. They keep getting back closer and closer to Windows 7. Um, I don't even really notice the difference anymore, not like it was with the first generation of Windows 8. Uh, that's been a good little board. I did too. I had a big Dell Workstation 690. I brought it to the meetup last time and showed it to you guys, and it was a gigantic power hog. I mean, that thing would run 400 watts easily uh, in an idle state. Well, let's say 375. So it's I could just couldn't I could see the dollar signs. You know, every time I turned that thing on, I could see the dollar signs, and I was using Hyper V on it with Windows Server 2012, but just. I couldn't, I really, it hurt me every time I turned it on. I mean, I was physically in pain. I'm just like, I can't leave that server on very long. And uh, yeah. moving that server down, you know, I got rid of it. I pulled it out and moved everything over onto a Core i3, uh, you know, that I'm using now as the server running 2012. Much happier with that that piece. Now, 16 gig of RAM, so I'm not, but I'm not doing what you're oh, doing. Oh, yeah, right? for workstations, you know, fine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, in this case, I'm running server on it, and I will run virtualization on it. I only okay. run a couple VMs at a time. I'm not a heavy VM user, you know. Oh, that's you're, fine, you're, yeah. You're, uh, that's what you do. For me, you know, I run a couple VMs off server 2012, and uh, every once in a while, I haven't even 
actually have not loaded a VM yet on the new on the new install. I just haven't got around to it. But you can do it for the average guy. That's a fairly decent configuration. I'm having I got 16 gig of RAM. I got a Core i3 530. Supports it great. Works well. Everything's fast. Um, fast enough, I should say, for what I'm doing. So there's there are average guy solutions for that as well. Paul, yeah, no. what is it that uh, lured you to a desktop board for this as opposed to a server board? Money. I mean, I want, I'd rather put my money in the solid-state drives and the SSD caching rate adapter in LSI9265, which a lot of my articles are about. That's actually why I started my site. Uh, you couldn't find any information, really, about what rate adapters worked well. So I was basically building a build-your-own-sand or roll-your-own-sand kind of thing, or really fast local storage subsystem. Well, not really a storage area network, sorry. Local storage, really fast local storage. And to make that run affordably, uh, I wasn't interested in um, slow RAID 5s or NAS devices that were slow. So I went with keeping the money down by spending normal amounts of money on the motherboard, the DIMMs, and the CPU, a Core i7. Also, there was a second machine for gaming in the house. So I knew when the motherboard dies one day, which it might any day now or a year from now, who knows, I have a spare one, right? So kind of an eye to the future. My ASRock motherboard worked great with virtualization. Um, so did uh, MSI. ASUS and Gigabyte did not work well at all. They didn't do pass-through, which is a feature I needed at the time. So those are my decision points. Supermicro, Tyan, those brands, they're great. Just the cost rises a little. When I put all the parts together and the ECC memory and the higher-end CPU and all and the watt burn, I looked at the outlay over three or four years, and I don't regret my decision at all. I saved a lot, um, especially when you look at electricity as well, because I knew I was leaving this running 24-7. I'm a guy, probably, if I don't leave it running, I won't use it. If I can double-click an RDP icon on my desk and I'm looking at the VM in one second, I'll use it. And that was the biggest part of the success story, just leaving it running, not trying to shut everything down every day. Then I just, you know how that goes. You just, it takes five minutes to boot your Xeon that blows out a lot of heat and noise. You just don't bother, right? Right. So that's, you know, you're right. There's great features in those motherboards. IPMI, out-of-band, keyboard video mouse, um, over IP, which I've added with a Lantronic Spider, by the way. So I can do frame grabbing. I can um, do videos of me building an ESXi super, uh, hypervisor from scratch, from when you power on the machine to that's cool. you know, st stick in the USB key and all. So, but you're right. For most people, uh, a motherboard that's built for servers in the end, probably a better way to go if money is not really um, as much of an object. For me, it was a huge issue. I was trying to get it as cheap as possible. I'm okay with returning, RMAing various motherboards and CPUs and blogging to the world about it when I succeed at getting to a, a new price point. And that's what I was doing with Vizilla. A really fast storage subsystem, a lot of memory, 32 gig affordably, way back in 2009. That was all kind of a big deal. Uh, sorry, sorry, I went too far back in time. 2011, excuse me, is when I first started uh, the blogging about these. It's been three years since you've... Yeah, three years. And, crazy. Yep. I remember you doing that. Yeah, so that's that's where it started, Christian, just getting that price point cranked down, and it took a lot of effort. Um, but, I, you know, that, that was a lot of fun, too. So that, so that that was my driving, driving factor. Um, electricity in the New England is historically the highest in the nation, up at 16, 18 cents a kilowatt hour. So... You do the math, if you take home a 500-watt typical three-year-old dual Xeon from work or something, you're looking at $1,200 of electricity your employer's probably not going to reimburse you for. That's a, a lot of heat to throw into the atmosphere, and that's a lot of money over a three-year span, right, that you could be spending on SSDs or other good stuff, not just yeah, Well, we pay half that, to be honest. But there still, you go. 600 bucks a year is... Yeah, 
six hundred bucks a year, and if I can do it for cheaper than that, you know, if I can, if I can half that again. What do you think, Johnny Z in Canada? I don't know Montreal. They use hydroelectric. Power. It's almost free, right? They use electric baseboard heater because they got hydroelectric. It's different, right? It's almost it's really free. Out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christian, you've been. I saw. Did I see a picture on Facebook or something? You've been uh, uh, putting some servers in. Yeah, not into my network. That's into right. the uh, network uh, in College Park, and those are all. Um, super micro blade chassis, SBQ 710s, I think, and uh, it essentially, um, so I'm working on building a cloud up, and uh, everything's on OpenStack, so that's a, a virtualization platform that uh, takes advantage of the libvirt open source virtualization and all the Linux Unix environments, and those are all um, so the so the individual blades are dual socket Xeons with I think we only have like 16 gigs of RAM in them right now, but we want to pump pump it up to 128 gigabytes of RAM per blade, um, and I have five of those running in one, and those are cool because there's a lot of things you can do at like a a data center level with those types of machines that you can't with like the traditional motherboard. So a big thing is a Finiband. Um, it has a whole bottom uh, hot swappable InfiniBand um, card, which if anyone isn't familiar with that term, is basically a high-speed alternative to Ethernet, except it's it's raw data transport, so you have to kind of define how you're going to do the path. But it supports things like hooking up hard drives directly over an InfiniBand interface to an Ethernet-based network, so there's a lot of really crazy things you can do with that. That also has the built-in IPMI serial over LAN. Um, you can control the power environment of the entire blade system remotely from a website. Um, so those are really nice units. Um, as Paul said, though, those super micro units in particular are expensive, but they're they're high quality. So um, they really do last a long time, and it's made for the ideal um, OpenStack environment for us to do all of our software-defined networking experiments in the cloud. So uh, that's kind of the the next thing of where every where everyone's going with that technology. So Paul, just out of curiosity, is um, have you been working at all with SDN stuff in in um, in the uh, VMware platform? No, I haven't. Um, I have played with, by the way, Topspin InfiniBand adapters years ago, known for super low latency, right? You're mentioning that. Right. And the enterprise, very common. And actually, they're inside the IBM storage enclosure that I work with as part of my day job. InfiniBand is the interconnect between right. a whole bunch of modules of, uh, well, they're basically dual Xeon processor machines stuffed with 12 drive bays, right? And you yep. cluster all that together with InfiniBand because it's super awesome low latency. Right. Not typically found in home lab, although people do talk about Take an InfiniBand adapter and kind of build your own sand at home with a super duper speedy yeah. latency uh, access to your storage subsystem. Right, right, right. Which I mentioned um, RAM is a bottleneck in VMware, but also VMware Hyper-V doesn't really matter. Your storage subsystem. Going back to an old NAS you might have from three years ago with RAID 5 compared to a solid-state drive, it's just terrible, right? You're spoiled. Yeah, I mean, well, I... Yeah. It's interesting because, like, I noticed... So the, the drives on the blades that we had... All of the blades except for one had, I had them in RAID 6 with uh, Savio 10K 7200 RPM drive, or 10, sorry, just, wow, I just said 10K and then I said 7200 right after. No, it's just 10K. <laughs> um, 
and uh, that's super fast configuration. And then you look at the one blade that just has the you know the one regular SATA drive, and yeah, it's a lot faster having that set up. Um, and those aren't SSDs, but I would say it's probably the next thing closest to it. Um, but really, I mean, in my opinion, it kind of depends on what type of virtualization you're doing because the only time I'm going to notice that one storage configuration on the blade is faster than the other is if I'm configuring or updating the actual operating system. But if those blades are designed to be the compute resources, I could care less what the hard drive resources are there. Um, I'm much more concerned about, if I'm talking about storage, the, the systems that are responsible for storing the um, logical volumes and mounting that. So like if you're thinking like AWS cloud, you want your you know your raw storage blocks, your EBS storage, and 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 the things that actually run the images. You want that to be solid. Um, but I, you know, I, I so so the formatting of it. Um, in the case of OpenStack, uh, OpenStack has a thing called Cinder, which is pretty similar to the raw block storage that AWS uses, and you can pretty much allocate. Um, give it a chunk of raw unformatted file system and put all your volumes on there. So that would be, that's the part of the ecosystem that I want, that I would want to be high performance. Now, in your case, it's like, okay, yes, we can do the SSD things, but it, let's say that you start getting a lot of tenants or customers on this cloud and you need the storage, then it's kind of like, well, I'm not going to invest the money to buy to fill these bays with what one or two terabyte SSDs is just not just not practical. Um, so it would you know actually in that case the best thing is the drives that have the you know 64 128 cached SSD on the front end, but the actual drive is still the platter. Um, those perform well. So in our in our storage cluster we have all I think. Western Digitals and Hitachi two terabyte drives all put together in a mega RAID, and I mean it performs fine when you have what forty drives all in RAID chirping at the same time, um, yeah. and so yeah, it just kind of depends what 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 your storage requirements are before you figure out what drive it's going to be. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good counterpoint to what I'm saying, right? After many years on the road and doing you know. Blade Center work and firmware flashing and, and uh, installing ESXi, all the, the complexity at work. Sometimes the IT pro at home might really want to keep it simple, and that's what I was doing with Vsilla in 2011 was, okay, I've already played with Active Directory. I've played with Cluster. I'm just making a single ESXi box so I can run efficiently. I just right. narrowed the scope and then looked for that rate adapter. Why? Because I had multi-terabytes of videos that I talked about, but I wanted read-write caching of it. And VMware, to have software, like in the hypervisor that would do that, or Hyper-V, would be um, expensive. That tends to be enterprise stuff. I just wanted a hardware level doing it. So my RAID adapter, you point to an SSD and it becomes a read-write layer. Notice I said read and write. That's a little riskier, but also better. More, more performance boost for stuff like horsing around with Windows 8.1 when it was preview mode. I'd put that in a VM, right? I wouldn't be doing that on my laptop. Just run it on the machine. I, I horse around with VMs that reboot stunningly quickly. That's the cool stuff. Way beyond what my little laptop could do Juggling two or three VMs comfortably, now I can just leave a whole bunch of VMs running in the basement and concurrently, and they just they just fly. So, sure. a bare metal hypervisor, it is a little more complicated setup, a little more time consuming, but I got it to under an hour. I can rebuild the whole lab in about an hour, and reuse the same VMs I already have. All I got to do is rebuild the hypervisor. 
So as complicated as VMware initially sounds, that's some of my videos that took a great deal of uh, time to get right, but basically I nailed a process where you can keep it simple in your home lab and rebuild from a USB thumb drive in about an hour and boot from that drive that you install from. It's pretty cool. So Paul, awesome. if, some, if somebody wanted to do that, you've got all the yeah. videos on your site to, to be able to kind of walk, because that, to me, yeah. that stops me from using VMware, because I think, oh, you know, an hour. one more thing to figure out. No, it's not even the time. It's like, you know, it's like when Raspberry Pi came out and everyone's like, well, are you going to talk about it? I'm like, man, I need one more thing to talk about. Like, I need a hole in my Sure. Uh, but, yeah. you know. No, great point. So, tinkertry.com, upper right, there's a button, Super Guides. That's where you'd want to go, and there's one about VMware, and I try to keep it up to date. So, right now, it's been recently updated to 5.5, because there's a collection of articles. Or you can just go for the long one, the video that's about an hour long that shows you every step of the way from when I first turn on the machine, configure the BIOS, um, all of it. Um, let me just add a footnote. That rate, oh, go ahead. I was going to ask real quick, hardware-wise with 5.5, I, I know VMware is a little picky with the hardware. Still yeah. real picky, or is it has it gotten any better? <laughs> All right, let's talk about that. Good question. <laughs> um, 5.1 was actually a little less picky. 5.5, they cut back from the home enthusiast a little bit. They took away Realtek drivers, which a lot of people have on their motherboards. Yeah, they do. So one of my very popular articles is this, how do you inject the Realtek drivers on a USB flash drive that you're going to install VMware from? Let me say that again and follow that. It's complicated a little bit. You're on a Windows 8.1 laptop, say. You use Rufus to build from an ISO a custom USB key that has Realtek networking drivers injected in. That's a mouthful, but why? Because now when you boot that on your, your virtualization server, it boots from the USB drive. It says, where do you want to install to? You say, I want to install to the USB drive I just booted from. It says, OK. And when you know the Realtek driver makes it and VMware is no longer stopped in its track, not finding any networks it knows what to do with or network adapters. And boom, you're, you're past that, that pain point, that step backwards that VMware took where it seems like they're pulling some of the commodity driver support out of the default and making you do a little bit of work. So that's the, that article has actually become, I think, maybe my most popular now. It's either the rate adapters or Rufus, the guy who wrote free software, which is not easy to find on Windows that's not riddled with spyware or other baggage you don't want. Just an EXE you run on Windows. Can they download that works. from your site? Or do you host that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, if you type Rufus on my search, my Google okay. search, site search in the upper right, you'll easily find several articles about Rufus and exactly how to build that boot media for VMware. And I don't skip any steps, right? I show you everything from signing up at VMware site portal to downloading the, the ISO to changing that ISO into a USB key that you boot from to installing to that USB key, and then voila, it's now found your RAID adapter and your storage, and you and you now carve it up and put VMs on it. That's the basic process. I, I, I install my hypervisor on a USB key that can come and go or be moved around, but my storage, my RAID 5 I keep talking about, and my solid-state drives, those just stay put. They've been just cranking away for three and a quarter years just fine. So I've rebuilt the hypervisor many times. The storage and all the VMs that live on it have just been sitting there a library of them. So thank you for asking that. Um, yeah, that, yeah that, cool. no, for getting started. Yeah. yeah, I think for me, if I was going to get started, and I, you know, I hear from a lot of the folks that listen, Not, we don't have very many VM experts. we got a few out there, and guys have been talking about it. kind of comes and goes in waves. Yeah. You know, If you've been thinking about it and you just got intimidated, because I downloaded the software, burned it to a DVD, put it on, got it working, then it was kind of like, all right, now what? You know, kind of deal. You've got yeah. a video that you can walk through, kind of shows everything. 
Yeah, and it just to put the counterpoint out there, right? If you're not using ESXi at work for any reason, frankly, you're probably on MSDN if you're listening to this podcast. You're probably using Hyper-V. I'm well aware of that. And um, there's a Microsoft guy, um, Dan Stoltz. His website is itproguru.com. And I've got a, a link I'll put in the show notes, but um, aka.ms slash Hyper-V 2012. That's his URL for downloading Hypervisor, and he kind of gets you know a little referral credit to show there's people out there that are going to try Hyper-V instead. And if you use a link like that, it helps a local guy who just goes out and does free training. He, he drives all over uh, the Northeast, and there's other Microsoft people that do that. So I would encourage you to get out to local user groups. Uh, these Microsoft folks fly and drive all over the place. They're pretty keen on getting you to free classes. Last summer, I sat at a wonderful event, uh, VTUG in Maine. I remember I mentioned I'm going to Maine in July. I did that last summer, too. And what do you know, I got there a day early because Microsoft was offering half a day for free to sit there and learn about the latest and greatest Hyper-V features. So they're very aggressive going, aggressively going after people like me that use VMware in the workplace. So I'm not going to pretend I could convince the average guy to necessarily jump in and use ESXi hypervisor that admittedly you can build in an hour um, versus Microsoft where if you have MSDN, you might have some more resources to back you up because frankly, my approach, you don't have anything. You don't have any help from VMware, right? Pretty much everything on my site is unsupported. <laughs> You're going with a 90-day time bomb and winging it. <laughs> if that scares you, admittedly, uh, you, you might get through my hour video, you might get the lab belt, but if it scares you, you don't really have official support, you might go the MSDN approach because then I think you still get three tickets you can open with Microsoft per year, right? Does that sound about right, uh, Christian? Two, I think it's two. Two? Okay, yeah. two. I save yeah. my doozies for those, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I save the hard ones for Microsoft. You know, one, I'll do like one a year. As a Paul, why, why do you like VMware more than Hyper-V? Uh, it's mostly just familiar experience, and 98% of my customers are on it. I don't know if that single one on I have dozens of customers, so my day job, it helps to be stay somewhat sharp on VMware. I'm not installing it as often. More and more is, you know, it's on-premise, they're installing it, but to know it is much more useful at this point in my career than Hyper-V. I'm not saying technically it's... Um, way beyond, but three years ago when I started my site, it was USB 3.0 support, so I could uh, attach a 5 terabyte drive to a VM and pass it through. That was only available in VMware. Also, if I wanted to play with both Hyper-V and VMware, the only way you could do that is installing Hi VMware first and then nesting Hyper-V under it. You can't go the other way around, and that's still true to today. You can't. So the thing I install, the bare metal hypervisor that goes in my box first, is going to be VMware because I can still play with Hyper-V and learn it underneath it. So those sure. are some of the reasons. I uh, hope that that's a starting point. And, that's uh, just me personally, not saying that's for everyone, right? I'm not going to yeah. try to, yeah. Sure. And then um, also your, you mentioned RAID 5 for your setup, I believe. Mm -hmm. Have you had to ever recover from that? Sure. <laughs> and I even I used a non-supported SSD, and I actually corrupted some VMs that were running too. So yeah. yeah I, what, break, what is your success things. rate with coming back from RAID 5? Because I've heard a lot lately that people are just like, man, this sucks. I, we, we had to just rebuild our production uh, cloud system because the whole RAID controller just got corrupted and the RAID 5 recovery just, which is hardware RAID. I mean, we had a, I think it was a three-ware card and they were good cards and uh, just had to start, start from, wipe it out and go from, the backups that we had, but it wasn't like the we we gave it like three days to rebuild the RAID array, and it just never pulled out. Yeah, I tested all that before I put data on there. So, April 2011, buying the RAID adapter first, I had a 9260 and a 9265 from LSI. 
and Dell and IBM and HP and Fujitsu and Intel, they all OEM that same chipset, right? So once I nailed it, I knew I was nailing it for all those platforms. And mm -hmm. what I want, when I say nailed it, I mean what firmware, what RAID level, what do I do with the one, two terabyte drives I had laying around? Well, 5.6 terabytes and four drives and a RAID 5 with a solid state drive caching it. it. It worked. And I tested things like, you know, pulling a drive, making sure VMware's hypervisor alerted me. So I did all that before I put data on there. So I treated it like an enterprise, doing a lot of work before I even blogged or told anyone about it, just making sure I was comfortable. Um, and the rebuilds, or even, I think I even did a live volume expansion with a RAID 10 at one point. I test, I, I really tried a lot of things on that. The longest rebuild was like overnight, four to eight hours on 5.6 terabyte RAID 5 array. That's okay. Uh, yeah, it's not that horrible. Yeah, um, it's a hardware RAID car that gets a little bit warm. I actually have a fan kind of blowing at it inside the, the, the chassis, but it's, it's meant to, it doesn't actually come with a dedicated fan on it. And there's newer ones, 9266 and later, but LSI historically has been uh, kind of the darling of the VMware side with good driver support. Um, I say that, but it's also been kind of hard. Uh, let's see. There's other brands. We have an Ethernet port right on the RAID adapter, so alerting is very easy. You just plug in the Ethernet port, go to that IP address that's assigned, and, and do stuff to configure your RAID array. And you've heard um, Mike Fauché talk about that, right? Arika and others. LSI, not so simple. <laughs> just a little harder to set up. Right, right. Um, but when, you know, control it. You, you go into the BIOS, you set it up. The SSD is caching on a hardware level. That means ESXi or Hyper-V, whatever I install in there, it's just automatic. There's no drivers. So um, someone just asked me that on my site a couple of days ago, and you could see site commenters right on the right side of my site. I keep them right up front and center. So when asked me, hey, um, Intel motherboards that have RAID on there, the answer is no. Those aren't going to work with ESXi because they need Windows drivers to kind of activate them, right? That Intel RST stuff, kind of low end. Right, right, right. Yeah. So sure. another gotcha. That's probably making Jim, you know, thinking, yeah, I stuck with Hyper-V. I kept it easy, and I don't like rate adapters still. I'm not trying to convince you otherwise, Jim. It's no, just I, I, I at work in my day job, I played with rate adapters anyway. So I was already yeah, not, pretty comfortable with them. Not taking that way at all. I, I am yeah. a Hyper-V guy because it's convenient, uh, and that's yeah. what I've learned. I mean, I use VirtualBox for a while, and... Uh, we were talking in the pre-show. I've I've actually I went back to VirtualBox um, to try and do something. I was it's been a couple months, and I I was I kind of forgotten how like that's like using a using a really good you know. So when you're on Hyper-V, I think you're using a really nice pen. You go back to VirtualBox as like a crayon, <laughs> you know, and you're like ah oh this hurts, <laughs> you know, as you're looking the interface is just not as good. Now you don't notice that when you're if you're a VirtualBox user, I'm not trying to insult it. If you're a VirtualBox user, it's a great tool for just kind of desktop virtualization and some of those quick and easy down and dirty kind of things. But you do it enough and you start really getting spoiled, you know, like with VMware as well. You get kind of spoiled with the options and the layout and how clean it is and how nice the setup and the different options that you get. So um, that was what was painful for me. Yeah, um, great segue into, you know, people's desktops, right? Windows 8.1 you've got virtualization there. If you're just trying to toy with one or two VMs, you might go that route. Whoops, sharing out the wrong window. <laughs> that was I weird. Nice wave. I gave it a nice wave. I told it screen share, and that's not the window I picked. But no, I, it I, moves I, sometimes I, on you really quick, too. You click it, and it moves on you. I guess so. Okay, that's yeah. what I meant to share. I'll put you in, in uh, full screen mode there. There you go. So VirtualBox, you're right, free. And when you Google free virtualization, that's what people will uh, often download. Um, or they might use what's built into Linux or Windows these days. But 
either way, the reason I'm sharing this window is an unfortunate naming history from VMware was VMware Player. It sounds like it reads only VMs or someone else had to build a VM and you can play them back. That hasn't been true for years. It's just a bad name. So VMware still offers a free virtualization product. It's called VMware Player 6. And I'm just sharing that out in the desk because that's also been an, an article for people um, that tries to explain what's the difference between virtualization uh, on Workstation 10 and Player 6, which are meant for like client-side Windows 8 users like me. Um, my day job is a Windows 7 VM. It runs on triple monitors full screen all day long. It's sharing my laptop's NIC. It's encrypted. It's on the solid-state drive. It's all that day job stuff that the typical enterprise user uses. But what do you know? I'm playing with 8.1 by night. So Windows 7 by, 8, uh, by day and a VM that's running full screen on my laptop. And then Windows 8.1 is what's hosting it. VMware Play is a perfect product for that. I don't need anything fancy. just needs to run it. And it has all those features for years now. Um, so uh, it's, if you want to do it on a Mac, you would be calling it uh, VMware Fusion, by the way. So um, another pretty cool thing on that's unique to the Mac, you can buy a Mac Mini, and like my son has at college, you can boot Windows 8.1 on it, or you can boot OS 10 on it. When you boot OS 10 and you run VMware Fusion and it fires up your Windows 8.1 VM, it's the same actual operating system that's on that solid-state drive you can also boot off of. So you can dual boot, or you can run as a VM. Either way, it's the same Windows 8.1 instance. That probably sounded a little confusing, but hopefully it's, it's the ultimate kind of dual boot environment is the Mac with its UEFI BIOS on a cheap little Mac Mini. Really cool little box I'll just mention. So if you're looking at client-side virtualization, that might be a cool way to think, even if you're a Windows enthusiast, right? You can have that. Um, well, I don't. I um. I don't want to yeah. run out of time, and I know Christian yeah. has a question around uh, uh, some VPN. We didn't. We didn't cover that yet, did we, Christian? No. You. So well, let's um. Let's shift gears a little bit. Before we do that, uh, uh, Kevin Schoonover had asked. He said, "Ask Paul about NSX." I have no idea what that means, Paul. What is, what is NSX? Do you know? All uh, right. He's talking about network virtualization. And I just throw, I'll throw that on the uh, desktop. Here, let me, okay. Um, yeah, I don't have a chance to use that at work. Most of my day job is saying stuff, so I'm not playing with customers' virtualized network. And Christian, you hinted at that, right? Storage defined, uh, software defined, this, that, and the other thing. And the data center is the way things are moving, right? Right, right. And I'm admitting this podcast has not been about that at all. It's been about the simplest starting point for how do you get started with virtualization at home. And um, it's a different angle. So sorry, I'm not giving a great answer. I have no first-hand no, experience with VMware good. NSX. That's what he said. So we, we covered it. Good, good to go uh, on that. Not a lot of on that. Christian, uh, let's let's dive a little bit into your question because I know when I was talking, when I told you I was going to have Paul on, you're like, oh, good, I got a question for him. Yeah, so, now I'm uh, just trying to remember what it was that we were uh, talking about. VPN. We were talking. Was it around the VPN discussions we were having the other day about you know? Having your own, using your own VPN client at home or server at home to access through, you know, Starbucks through Starbucks and that stuff. Yeah, it might have been. Oh, I think yeah, because Paul, uh, I remember you had sent me um, some questions a couple weeks ago about the VPN options through um, uh, what was natively supported. I think on the iPhone with. Um, I can't remember which package we were talking about, but then we we mentioned along the way the VMware platform and what you were doing with that, and I just thought we could get back on that train of thought for a minute here. Yeah, no, sure, happy to. Um, so at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned talking at virtualization user groups, so not just attending, but occasionally I get to be a guest speaker, and 
that's what I got to present um, in May, and that's what I'm actually probably doing again in New York City shortly, and that is running an open VPN appliance under ESXi. There's also Hyper-V right. version, right? But the point is you're leaving a machine running in your house, and you're tunneling in through your own home's network when you're on the road. That's the so, gist of it. So why is this advantageous as opposed to just letting OpenVPN run on your router, which is always on anyway? Sure. You mean a uh, tweaked router or an aftermarket? Bu- um, yeah, I mean, even though, well, yeah, so that's somewhat true, but I mean, like, pretty much all all the DDWirt natively supports OpenVPN. All the v- all the uh, PFSense stuff supports OpenVPN. So if you're somewhat technically inclined, um, well, if you're if you're using VMware, you should be technically inclined to also come to the same conclusion that it shouldn't take too long to set something up like PFSense. Um, so is there any particular like advantage or performance gain by doing it on this platform if you already have that going, or is it apples and oranges? All right, I'll share up my desktop here, and this is the reasoning I had. Imagine you have other people in the house where you don't want to change control window and you don't want to mess with their network. That's it for as far as PFSense or playing with anything else. I don't use an appliance for everyone else surfing the web. So if you look at this picture here, you'll see I've got a traditional Wi-Fi router. It's a Linksys EA6900, and it just has the factory default firmware, no VPN in it. What I've done is taken the cable modem, and Cox happens to allow us to do this, so Jim Collison, it's possible your cable modem, yours would do this as well. Your cable modem actually has a DHCP server in it, and you can be allowed up to three IPs on Cox. What does that mean? That means I've got a public-facing IP address when my whole family's surfing the web through the Wi-Fi router, and then I have a second IP address that goes to this OpenVPN appliance. So it's secure, it's separate from my home network, and it's just a way I can surf when I'm on the road and iOS 7 now allows you to do that. So only in the last year did Apple allow kind of third-party VPNs. Not just Juniper, Cisco, the big ones, but kind of a roll-your-own open VPN solution you can now do on iOS. So for me, it was kind of the ultimate way of not messing with my family's network connection at all, not even on the same IP as them, and just safely and securely using a hotel Wi-Fi. When I'm stuck at a location where only Wi-Fi works and LTE and Verizon doesn't, then I want to encrypt in, you know, what I'm doing. And this thing is fast and free. I'll repeat that, fast and free. I've got OpenVPN working with no monthly bill, and I'm doing it at no additional cost. That was the things I nailed that excited me, and that's why I've been talking about it at user groups. It's kind of fun to figure out in evenings and weekends a way to do it fast and free, not paying any $3 monthly bill for some iOS app or Android app. And it works on Android, by the way. How long has Cox been offering that three rotating DHCP addresses? Uh, thing, or? I've been doing it for at least six months, but I remember trying it three years ago, and it worked back then, too. Um, hmm. Yeah, Comcast, Time Warner, you might have very different rules. They may pay you, have you pay something for additional IPs in your home. Yeah, well, I know in Fios, that's definitely a, a non-starter in that sense, but... Um, okay, so your uh, Fios, cable modem, whatever device they put in your house, it will not feed out two different IPs, right? Right, well, yeah, so... You can have your own router with Fios, but uh, the IP address that will get unleashed from the ONT is only going to be one. Uh, it's only going to give you one at a time. Um, but, I mean, you could still arguably, uh, you know, do the same architecture setup and just create a VLAN at the edge device level and just segment as long as you're in this link, as lo- in this setup, as long as you're 
D-Link uh, switch supported tag traffic, you would be able to basically have the same effect with your own isolated VLAN. It would just be your external facing IP is is handling both traffic, but I mean that's not really a, a performance difference or anything like that. Can you define uh, ONT for the audience here? You're using oh. some... Yeah, so the ONT is basically what Verizon Fios um, installs either in your basement or on the outside, and it's where um, basically their cable, their fiber, um, I don't know if it's cable or fiber that goes to the ONT. I think it depends. Um, but essentially, the Verizon cable makes its way to the ONT, which is... Uh, basically sitting on what I call the neighborhood network, right? So you and probably a hundred other people in your block or whatever who are using Fios, all of their all of the ONTs uh, basically communicate with Fios as an internet service provider to uh, basically provision the the routes and then have access to the Fios network. Um, okay. So that's they actually, you know, they have backdoors into their ONT. They also have backdoors into their into the router, which is kind of humorous because that technically means, well, if they have a backdoor into the modem or the the router that they give you, and technically they have a backdoor into your whole network as well, which is kind of unsettling for me. Um, so I have, of course, completely eliminated the Verizon hardware as much as I can with the exception of the ONT, which you need. Um, but yeah, so I um, the Verizon Fios service itself is, is fiber optical, um, but you have different types of cables involved there because, for example, if you're going to be if you're going to be doing um, both like television and internet um, you're going to have what's called mocha, which is a ben ex essentially the fiber is in, is in the very thin core and everything else is outlaid around it. Yep, um, TiVo Romeo's use that, for instance, mocha built right in. Right. So, yeah, so in our case, because we don't have the uh, TV boxes that need the Verizon Video On Demand because we're using all the silicon and, and our own cable cards, we just got rid of that whole thing and we basically run an Ethernet cable to the ONT which um, actually stands for Optical Network Terminal so um, that's part of the whole thing of what Fios is. Now of course those ONTs are also going to run into some issues at some point architecturally because um, at least for Fios the majority of ONTs that are deployed right now don't support IPv6 um, and that is primarily because the original buffer size uh, that they made for those devices was not, or it's either the state tables or the buffer sizes, or honestly both, um, can't handle the dual stack IPv4, IPv6. And honestly, like if you're getting the, the Fios Quantum service, which is now, you know, you can get like maybe half a gig into your house, almost like Google Fiber, um, those ONTs have to be upgraded because the original ONT that they would install in your house um, only is a 10100 NIC that comes in to the to the house. So any notion of uh, gig, gigabit internet is kind of gone at that point. Um, so they're going to have to do probably over the next five to ten years massive upgrades to pretty much every place where there's an installation if you want to either go to Fios Quantum or IPv6 has to be enabled at that site. Um, 
And obviously these aren't things that are typically on the average guy's mind yet, but they will be once it starts becoming standardized more. So Christian, you mentioned um, you know, security, right? So a typical maybe average guy project more likely would be maybe you leave a Windows 8.1 machine running in your home, you install OpenVPN as just a, a service. You, you just click, exactly. click and install. That's, that's what the t more typical user might do. Then they log into their router, 192.168.0101, whatever, typical factory default, and they do port forwarding if they can figure that out, meaning they're not thrilled with it, but they might do it once in a while and poke a hole in their own firewall and say, okay, forward the ports for OpenVPN. I That's, don't know. My, my first average guy project would be to teach people not to start with 192.168.1.1 and learn sure. how to change their subnet. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but again... I, yeah. Yeah, but anyhow, that's where people might start. But then you have the queasy feeling, like, yeah, you're really allowing it's on your home's network, right? So okay. go back to this picture I'm sharing, uh, and that was part of the point here. Two different IPs helping with isolation. So that Ubuntu-based OpenVPN appliance, I didn't need to learn Linux or Ubuntu. I'm a lot more comfortable in Windows, frankly. It's just an appliance. I don't have to roll up my sleeves and get it a command line. It just downloads as a single OVF file for Hyper-V or VMware. And right. boom, you have the thing running in a minute. It downloads in like 20 seconds, you yeah. boot it up, it uses very little memory, it can be left running as a VM 24-7, very resource light, perfect for my VZilla box, meaning I already have it running in the basement, and I assign one of the gigabit ports right over to that cheap little $34 D-Link gigabit switch. No VLAN tagging, no fancy setup, just a dumb switch that uses less than 6 watts running 24-7. Yeah. Cable modem 6 watts, D-Link switch 6 watts, Wi-Fi router 6 to 12 watts, Minimal stuff that I can just leave running and not worry about it. And right. it's set a separate IP. It's, you see my green network versus my blue. It's a whole different network, and I can be less queasy about it. And it lets me for free install both a, an Android or an iOS or iOS and Windows 8.1 laptop on the road, two devices concurrently. That's all I need for my family. I'm not trying to support six people or trying to be a server with my Cox connection. Yeah, but is, it, also, yeah. It, it helps to at least get... Um, people to look at what their IP address layout is because if you're sticking with that default 192.168.1.1 and you're on another network, you know, that's a pretty commonly used subnet mm -hmm. for private networks and if you try and open VPN into your network and you have the same private addresses on both sides, they will run into conflict and everything will blow up in smoke. Uh, well, it won't physically do that, but you... So your VPN won't work. So. so this article I'm showing was the basic public presentation I did. Well, the following article I need to do is the step-through, walk-through, typical guide I do with soup to nuts of how do you do it, every single step. That video is hard to produce and hard to do because basically I have to sign up for a new OpenVPN account and download the appliance. It's just a lot of little steps. It'll be under an hour, the video, maybe under half an hour, hopefully, for the whole project. But once you know it's done, then I'll... I'll be pretty comfortable other people can reproduce the same success. Um, but again, there are easier ways to go about it, like I said, but far less secure. So presenting this at a security conference with, you know, pen testing professionals, uh, the best in the field, flying to Boston for this conference and standing up in front of them and trying to present, I couldn't do that with a straight face saying, okay, here's a great idea to share at your home, home network. And, I, and that's what I did not do. Right? I tried to make it at least a little more secure. I'm not claiming it's perfect, but... So for me, this was just a, a fun, successful project, Jim, because uh, there was little nuances to it that just weren't documented anywhere, like how do you handle IP address change that's typical in the home environment? So VPN or virtual private network, how do you get to that from your iOS device and configure the app on your iOS device once? You want to use a name, not an IP address, and hard code it, so you don't have to fiddle with the bits every few months when your IP changes. 
nailing that required in typing a couple commands in Linux, bringing down a package, and having it auto-handle you know, IP changes. That was kind of fun for me. So I did have to tweak the appliance slightly to make it robust so it could just last for years. And what felt good about it is I did this two months ago, and I haven't thought about it since. I just did it, and it works, and it's kind of like next project. I don't have to think about it. So that, that, that's the story. Um, roll your own VPN, not for everybody. Most people would probably want to spend $3 on a you know, monthly bill for an iOS or Android app. That is simpler than doing this at home. But when you already have a virtualization server, this project became you know, feasible for me yeah. and kind of fun. Yeah. No, very good. Very good. I, uh, I, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, crap, I, I've got 192. <laughs> you know, like Christian just rocked my world. I'm like, oh, crap, now i got one more thing i got to change. I mean, it's not like a requirement. I mean, it's just... No, I know. But it doesn't take that long to change your subnet. I mean, hell, just go to your router and change it. Yeah, from there. Yeah. No, no, I know. It's just one more thing to do. You know, it's one of those things that you spend some time. I got some spreadsheets with all the various things because they get signed IPs when they come into the router and some of those other kind of things. So it's like, oh, I got to change all that now. I'm not gonna, by the way. But <laughs> is that how it goes, Christian? When you try to tell your boss what to do? Uh, yeah, typically. <laughs> No, we're not going to do that. Here's I'm not his boss on this show, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's for darn sure. All right, let's transition one more topic because we're coming up on our time. It always goes so fast. Yeah, uh, wow. Paul, I've been, yeah, it just goes fast. I've been talking, uh, you know, I've been talking to Azure a lot, and uh, and I just really like. I think I think Azure is the average guy cloud solution for a lot of people, and and so I talk a lot about it. It's very easy to use, kind of point and click. It's getting more and or it's getting less and less expensive all the time. They, of course, are following the same patterns that uh, Amazon is doing and and the other you know cloud storage companies as far as cutting compute costs as well as cutting storage costs. Um, I've I've been a big champion, especially for folks starting WordPress sites. If you want to start your own blog, Azure gives you ten free websites available to you. They're pretty good. They're on shared hosting, but not any different than you'd buy for a couple bucks at GoDaddy or or Bluehost or HostGate or any of those, you're going you're gonna to get the same quality of service for nothing instead of paying a couple bucks, which is pretty nice. Um, Paul, any thoughts uh, from your side on Azure? You're like, hey, let's, uh, I, I want to challenge you a little bit on that. So let me throw that yeah. over to you. No, I mean, if you don't have a Hyper-V uh, Hyper or VMware server at home, yeah, um, Amazon Web Services or Microsoft's Azure, uh, OpenVPN Appliance, you can go that route. You can shove it out in the cloud somewhere and have this VPN, meaning you emerge in the Internet is if, in my situation, is if I'm home on Cox, right? When I'm out in public demonstrating this 100 miles away in Boston, it's as if I'm at home on a Cox cable modem connection, even though I'm standing in a Microsoft facility. It's the same deal. You can emerge from the Internet on Amazon Web Services or from Microsoft's Azure. I've heard of people rolling their own VPN solution or appliance out in the cloud somewhere. That's just one of many projects you could do. And, of course, you've been playing with Windows Server 2012 R2 Essentials. Now, for me, totally un, not feasible at all. I have five terabytes of data. Imagine trying to restore that from the cloud, you know, a week or two. So for me, no. I, I On-premise, my five terabyte RAID, thank you. I'm, I'm good. And I've been using that for, well, since 2007. But for most people, just toying with 2012, horsing around with it, and they don't really want to leave a machine running in their house, you're right, you know try this free sign-up, and you, you've been bragging about how darn cheap it's been for you. Oh, month, it's super right? cheap. Yeah, a couple bucks. I mean, if you're using it a lot or moving a lot of data onto it, it's going to be more, and, and so you want to check prices. But just to get it up and running and test it and get some things working on it, yeah, very inexpensive. You know, with an MSDN subscription, you get a credit as well. So if you're 
if you are a subscriber, you probably have a hundred dollar credit on Azure, and it's it's pretty tough to use a hundred bucks on Azure. You got to work hard to to really spin up a bunch of things and get that going. You know, so yeah, that's been uh, that's been a recommendation of mine for a while now. You can try these if you can do it in a VM at home. You can spin something up on a VM on Azure or or Amazon. I, I just I like I I looked at the S3 interface. And I, I, I landed on the Azure interface. It was just, for the average guy, it was just so much easier to use. Made so much more sense, at least for me, in getting things set up. And Microsoft's got some pretty good documentation around it, and they're very, very aggressive about getting people to use Azure. So, um, For me, um, three, uh, last summer, we're sitting at that uh, Microsoft-provided conference. Um, and again, to su- if you, you know, like to support Microsoft, MSDN, and free trainings they offer, uh, consider using the affiliate code, which I'll, I'll put in the um, chat, but it's super short. AK.ms, which is Akamai CDN, and Christian sure knows what that is, but AK.ms forward slash IIAS to do your Azure trial sign up, and you'll help throw some, um, um, you know, kudos the way of the Microsoft people that travel around and try to train you on this stuff for free. So if you can, it's a nice short affiliate link I'll throw in the show notes. And uh, my sticking point last summer, Jim, it's about the corporate credit card. They want a credit card. I'm like, uh, I can't go throwing the corporate American Express on there without approvals. Right, right. <laughs> and that's yeah. an issue. And it, I, yeah. it's a sticking point for me, but you on the air trying to tell everyone, don't sweat it. The bill is tiny, right? Just like Amazon Web Services tends to be peanuts. Very you low. you got to be careful, right? I, 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 if you go crazy, you can rack up some stuff, right? If you start moving large data files up there. It, it, it oh, could what's large? Could you define that for us? Yeah, no, I can't. No, hmm. I can't because I haven't done. A, I haven't moved a lot of data up there yet. And, How's five uh, terabytes sound? <laughs> that, I think that might be. Uh, that might be. They have a pricing calculator on there, and, um, yeah. and so you can you can go out there and price it out. Five terabytes would not be cheap. Yeah, yeah. it's not designed for that, right? I'm not really sold on the on the Azure as as opposed in comparison to AWS. I mean, I know they're both reputable, but. Um, Joe Klein kind of shook up my world a little bit on Cyber Frontiers when we were talking about the Azure platform, and Microsoft's going to run into some real problems with the way they've set up Azure. Um, the I, the current network in, infrastructure of the cloud environment, they've run out of their U.S. IPv4 IP address stock, which means I heard about that, that. Security which, Now or someone covered that. Right, cool. so they're now leasing from their global stock so you could in theory be I want this US server and your server could look like it's coming from somewhere overseas because you were assigned a global address a lot of people have been claiming and I don't know what a lot is so don't pin me on that but um, that the I uh, the, they've been getting IPs that resolve to Brazil and Microsoft won't answer them whether or not it's their IP is just from Brazil or whether or not their server is actually located in Brazil. And that's a huge problem for a lot of people because the laws on who has access to that data, when, and how that system is managed is completely different once you get out of the United States. So people are kind of shook up about that. They've also done a completely lackluster job at IPv6 implementation, um, and and that, that's going to be a huge issue for them because they're not going to get around this IPv4 problem, and they need to have an IPv6 infrastructure in place and, and they just don't, um, and they, they haven't really announced any plans for when they plan to do that, um, whereas you see Google and a lot of all, uh, these other major providers have this all figured out. Um, and so Microsoft's problem is pretty big when you think of, well, oh, wait a second, 
all of Outlook.com runs on Azure, and NIST just released a security document a couple months ago that basically says your public IPv addresses have to be geolocated in you know X amount of relative distance, otherwise it's a security problem. Um, and so, I mean, from a from a networking perspective, they're going to have to do some serious overhaul to how their backbone infrastructure is set up, or they could lose some serious high-end enterprise customers to something like AWS, which you know already has that all, you know, squared away, ready to go. Um, so yeah, that 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 that's going to come to bite them, I think. Mm-hmm. If it's not already, did uh, Joe talk about that on uh, Cyber Frontiers Five? Yeah, so that's definitely oh, cool. something you'll get in I cyber. I, yeah, I should. I need, I need listen. to listen all the way through. Yeah. I'm behind on that. I, I'm, I'm two episodes behind. That well, great, great, great teaser, Christian. Uh, that that is pretty yeah. serious. What you just said, right? Microsoft yeah. emerging on the internet from some f- faraway place. And uh, Jim, if you're horsing around with Windows 2012 and it's a little bit laggy because you're in another country, that's one thing. But if it's an enterprise who thought yeah. they signed up for something better, it's another. No, right on, it's, right on. I, full, full. Uh, yeah. Full disclosure, I'm talking about setting up WordPress websites and and you know that kind of stuff, not necessarily at the enterprise level. So, by the way, um, Christian, I looked at um content delivery networks. What the uh, uh, what a blogger can actually afford, a small blogger like me. And um, I looked at Max CDN. I looked at uh, DeddyServe, the host, the web hosting, and, and how many points of presence they have or, or servers all over the world for content delivery. And then I looked at Amazon, and wow, Amazon just had a whole lot more servers all over the world. Oh I yeah, cut, I, mean, I, yeah. I cut over to their CDN a month ago, and I've had consistently, you know, good, better page load times. It's been going well. So, I'm, that's not really an ad. I've played with them all over the last three years as I struggled to grow, you know, TinkerTry.com. But um, I put together a video about a month ago of Amazon CDN and how to deploy it with W3 Total Cache for WordPress blog, and it's pretty straightforward. Again, yeah. under an hour project from soup to nuts. Uh, it's kind of fun. Yeah, no, that's that's a nice setup. Um, I've had mixed luck with some of the other CDNs, like the Cloudflare CDN. Just plain made my stuff slower. It did nothing. Yeah, same with me a year and a half ago. I've been told to revisit it, but boy, it was a bit painful to. Play yeah, with. I, I want nothing oh. to do with them anymore. Um, okay. I've yep. I've found doing the, uh, the 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 proxy balancing at the edge has been really helpful and that's stuff I'm actually experimenting right now with stuff like tag and whatnot is um, having a proxy that is basically caching and creating objects as the requests are coming in so that it's just front-loaded and it's just bam it's there um, and it's the proxy that's going and looking for changes to the pages not when the client hits it so it's almost like a having a second layer of caching on top of whatever your default PHP object cache is going to be so forth but then if you really get fancy and you correctly set up your edge proxying um, you know you can bring up multiple servers and then load balance so that's kind of the infrastructure that I lean more towards just because I like to have everything kind of self-sufficient on stuff that I own but the, the AWS CDN is very impressive because they have the seven zones and the 40 plus regions I can't remember how they break it down but so uh, do you hear Christian get into the weeds here? The ultimate teaser for Cyber Frontiers podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk about that here really? shortly. So, exactly. so hang tight. No, that was good. That was a good tease, Christian. Nice, nice way to bring that in. I um, and the guy in chat says, uh, "No, thank you. I'll keep my own cloud." And uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of the guys when we talk on on home server show, you know, that is that's the audience we're talking to is is building your own cloud. I've actually found yeah. a couple services of late that help extend your own private cloud, which is kind of cool. So, in other words, you can install some apps on your 
uh, on your iPad, on your tablet, on your Android phone, uh, on your laptop, whatever, and be able to get back to your data very simply and very securely uh, without having to do the hassles of, and I think remote web access on 2012 is just awful. So um, it, uh, it's, it's some of those services. So we'll be talking, I've, uh, I've got some work to do to kind of dig into those a little bit. We'll be talking about those. And I'll pimp homeservershow.com here. Uh, coming up in the next couple weeks or months, depending on if we can ever get a show out. We tried to do a home server show on uh, Tuesday, and Dave's internet, like, literally minutes before we were starting, just crapped out. I've never, you know, you never see that happen, but his internet just crapped out. He, he had to call his uh, ISP, and they were, he said, I'm in, I'm 67 in line to get to help on his ISP, so... We're like, well, show's over, and uh, we've got some good stuff coming up, homeservershow.com. You two hang tight. Let me roll through some post-show stuff. We've got a tip coming from you, uh, Paul, for the new home tech tips, a new segment we have coming up. Let me just talk about that real quick. So we are trying to make some videos and audio a little bit shorter, kind of a condensed version of the show, but not not this show, just kind of some tips uh, around what we talked about. Um, I'm finding that as people uh, consume our content, they're a lot more inclined to consume a video that says it's three minutes long than one that says 120 minutes long on the very first try. And so we're trying to kind of bring them in with some shorter material. And uh, and so I've got to what, when we branched Home Tech off or we rebranded Home Tech, we, uh, we started a brand new one called Home Tech Tips. And so brand new RSS feed, brand new uh, iTunes feed, all that stuff is new. You can subscribe to it if you want. All the links uh, out there are now out. We just got everything, Stitcher and iTunes and all that stuff is all set over at theaverageguy.tv. So you can, if you want to get subscribed to that, those videos will, those videos will or audio will always be 10 minutes or less. Um, and so that's uh, that's kind of our goal with Home Tech Tips. If you haven't been out to theaverageguy.tv in a while, brand new site uh, sitting on Christian servers uh, out there and uh, rocking fast and I think a little bit easier to navigate. And so if you haven't been out there in a while, check out TheAverageGuy.tv. We spent, uh, Christian and I, and, and a lot of me in this case, usually it's a lot of Christian, but the, in this case it was me testing a lot of different configurations and in in the way things look. And I spent all spring, a couple weekends, um, five, six weekends, testing various things. And we finally landed on a, uh, a format, and then Christian kind of pestered me into actually getting it real. <laughs> <laughs> when are you going to put that thing out? So we finally got it out. Head, head out to theaverageguy.tv live. And we, I have a new subscription link, too, with social networks getting kind of screwy on what you see and what you don't see. I think the smartest way to keep you informed of what's going on at theaveragueguy.tv might be the old-school email subscription. So we're going to try dun, that out. I know. Isn't that crazy? I, I've, I have resisted that for five years. I never wanted to have that email subscription thing. I just didn't want to mess with it. I've just been so disappointed with what's going on at Facebook and uh, and just the way it, you can't. I mean, they they're ruining the community out there. So, um, I always thought we'd build the community on Facebook or on Twitter, and I, you can't really guarantee any of those networks are even going to deliver your message. I can deliver. I can't guarantee I can send you an email. So, if you want to head out there and subscribe, that'd be great. I'll be sending out oh probably a monthly kind of consolidation of the things that are going on just to keep you posted on what's happening at theaverageguy.tv. A great way to stay in touch. And I'll try to keep it to just once a month so we won't spam you. Head out there. You'll see a new subscription link. Just give me your email, and that'll put you in the database. We have a new audio player out there available as well. I'm using Audioboo now if you want to just go out. It takes a click to get into the video where you used to be able to just listen to the video right from the front page or the audio. 
now we have a player out there, so you can get access to any of the programs that we do, Cyber Frontiers, Home Tech Tips, Home Gadget Geeks, right there on the front page. Just click play, and there's even, you can go down four or five of the last episodes that are out there. And, uh, and so Audioboo has been providing that. That's been pretty cool, and uh, so give that a try as well. Home Service Show Meetup, I mentioned that a little bit earlier. Paul, you mentioned that as well. Paul, are you going to think about Home Service Show Meetup this year? <sighs> Two kids in college this fall. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my, brutal. Don't know. Brutal. So no, no go, care. huh? Yeah, probably not. I'm sorry. No, no, that's all right. That's all right. We, we, are, we are limiting it to 55 slots, which isn't any different than we had last year. We're just going to have a hard stop at 55. We only have 33 left, and we really haven't even been advertising it. So they are going to go quick. Uh, it is September 20th out in Indianapolis. I'll have a link to, in the show notes to get out and get registered. It does cost you 20 bucks. Wah, 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 right? Not that big of a deal. I think you guys can drop 20 bucks to come out, help Dave pay for some of the food. You know, if you came last year, Dave paid for a lot of stuff. It was and awesome. It was yeah, absolutely. It was dynamite. It's worth it's worth 20 bucks and more. So head out oh, yeah. there, get signed up. Yeah, you can attest, Paul, right? I mean, 20 bucks easy, right? I've been there twice, flew on my own dime. It was nothing to do with work. I had a blast. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah me too. So... We uh, 33 spots left as of this recording here on July 3rd. So head out there to the uh, to the uh, the home server show meetup link. Again, I'll have it in the show notes. So head out to theaverageguy.tv to get that. Christian mentioned it earlier. Cyber Frontiers is up and running. We have five shows. We're on iHeartRadio. That means we're big time. And uh, Christian would love it if you would subscribe and go out and listen to that. He bugs me every day for download numbers, and I just like to give him a little more than we have. So if you haven't tried out Cyber Frontiers, get out there, get it subscribed, iTunes. RSS, Podcatchers, Stitcher, all that stuff. We'd love to have you go out. Have a peek at some good stuff, some very heady stuffing like you talked about. We just, that last one on five, a little, I have to go back and listen to the whole thing. Christian actually did it without me, Paul. I, he, Christian did his first, is that first solo, Christian? First solo, man. It was, it was, it was, it was a moment. It was good. It was good. I listened to the beginning and uh, I mixed it. I didn't go all the way through it. But a uh, bit real busy weekend coming up, but it um, you should go out and listen to it. So, hey, Christian did a great job. You will want to hear it, and a great guest, Joe Klein, uh, and you will want to hear that as well. One more reminder, if you are a podcaster or you're thinking about podcasting, I do a podcasting show on Saturday mornings as well. So if you join us over at askthepodcastcoach.com on Saturday mornings, 9.30 Central, at 10.30 Eastern, there we go. You could uh, you can hear us there, and uh, you can even call in your questions. It's a call-in show. It's like old-school 80s, Paul. You and I remember that uh, call-in radio shows, and we freaked it up. It's oh, great. man. I, I went to college near Boston. I actually did that. I called in requests. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I used to do that, too. I used to call in these... My mixtape, my cassette recorder. And yep, financial I'm... shows I would call in. Should I sell this? Or Anyways, we take wow. calls live. It's kind of fun. We have a good time. And, uh, and so you can join us. Ask the podcast coach. Dot com. All right, it's Fourth of July. My kids are out there blowing off fireworks already. Even though it's only the third, that it, it's like a double night, right? Because there's a holiday tomorrow. And uh, I want to thank you for listening to us this evening. We'll stay around for the post show. If you're listening live, Paul's gonna. We're gonna record home tech tips, so we'll do that here shortly. But thanks for coming out tonight, Paul Christian. Great for uh, thanks. Thank you for coming out tonight. I appreciate it. You bet. No All right, we'll be back next Thursday. I got Rennie and Andrew, and I'm trying to track down John Zadler. Tonight, very heady. Next week, not heady at all. I'm just going to warn you, a little bit of a comedy podcast uh, next week. We are. This is going to be interesting, so you might want to join us live. That's the one, Rennie. 
Andrew, so the two guys from Australia, myself and John Zadler from Canada. I'm working on John. We're going to talk about different sayings that different countries have. And, uh, and we're going to roll through that. I think it's going to be pretty funny. So you might want to be out here next, uh, next Thursday. That time may change a little bit as opposed to 8 o'clock. Central might be 8.30. So just watch my Twitter at Jay Collison. And we'll let you know there. That'll be it. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, everybody.